Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. I'm your guest, Ethan Bartlett. You just parrot me. Just, I, whatever. I'm everyone's guest. I said I'm your guest, and I it, I was doing a thing, but... Okay, you you're just, doing a thing. You're, you, I'll you let wrote you do over your it. thing. You it's wrote fine. over my I thing. I didn't do... Nope, that's fine. It's you fine. just cause all kinds of problems in my life. Do you know that my wife... The day after our last podcast recording for Wrinkle in Time, that she bought five books. She bought five Madeline Langle books. <laughs> what was that? The set of like the Austin family series. That's awesome. Uh, I have. You're read them. welcome. Yeah, I mean, I know I should be grateful, <laughs> but I'm not. Anyways. So there. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. I'm glad. I'll live with it. I've come to terms with it. I don't need your emotional support. Yeah, you do, and you know you do. I yeah, I do. Yeah, so and, there. Don't worry. I'm like a you know a dog that you kick that keeps coming back. So it's not like I will ever <laughs> withdraw my emotional support. <laughs> and with that very dark metaphor, yeah, <laughs> it's our homework special part two. Hi, kids. Hi. Yes, again, we are not actually in a room, nor are we with Scotch. No. I mean, uh, we're just in a Michael spiritual Ethan. sense, I think I am with Scotch, but in a physical sense. Spiritually, I am one with Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so troubling. Oh, so yes. Troubling. And if the universe is a room, then we are in a room. I mean, isn't Denmark a room? No, Denmark's a prison. Denmark is a prison. Yeah. I mean, that's a sort that's of a room. room. A prison is, you know, or a lot of rooms. This is starting to get too Hamlet-y too quickly, as per frickin' usual. And... As per frickin' usual, and also as per is, as as per it, no. How's it going? Uh, it's appropriate for our homework special Except today. it's not anymore, because we left Shakespeare behind two whole weeks ago. No, but our homework today didn't leave Shakespeare behind. Was our because... homework today written by Shakespeare? No. Didn't think but so. Oh, it does it... That have that whole, like, Prince Hamlet reference that's, like, yep. a key reference that, point that, in that's a sense, exactly the entire what I'm talking poem about. turns on? Is that what you're trying to tell me here? That's precisely what that I'm trying to tell you. seems like garbage. We are reading Hamlet by T.S. Eliot. No, you try again. <laughs> oh, we're reading Proof Rock by Shakespeare. Well, that was closer. <laughs> It's the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by Because, in fact, this this poem explicitly says it is not Hamlet. It, it does. It may be an attendant lord or right. something similar, but it is not Hamlet. No, it is not. And... So that's what we're going to be discussing today, class. Uh, yeah, class, sit down, shut up, stop all making out with each other. I don't know. I was homeschooled, so... I have very <laughs> skewed view of what goes on in any given public school classroom, but I... I mean, that's that's pretty much it. Just yeah. Sit down, shut up, stop making out with each other, and listen to me talk about my beer. <laughs> yep. Because that's what we're doing now. Uh, it is. What beer are you I, drinking? Uh, I am drinking uh, the beer, Oh, sorry, that Michael. was impertinent. You're the teacher this month. I am. I'm Let's drinking speak. the beer called Michael. Wait, are you? Yes, I am. It is Michael... It is a uh, stout with black spiced tea. Ooh. 
Thank you for um, holding it up to the camera so all our You're welcome. You're welcome. Good. There you are, all of you who are listening. You can see that. It uh, does say Michael right there on it. It does, in the like, biggest letters I possible. Think, I think legally that you could walk into a store, just pick a, a six-pack or whatever of that right off the shelf, and just walk out. And if they tried to stop you, you could say, no, this beer has my name on it. Like <laughs> you can't not give it to me for free. I think that's exactly it is accurate. It is true. mine. Yeah. Um, it, it it's Michael. Uh, uh, this it's a stout with black spiced tea. Okay. Uh, and it's made by Lakefront Brewery. Ah. Uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes. Uh, another Wisconsin beer. Um, and, uh, Lakefront Brewery does this interesting thing where they, uh, pick one of their employees each year to create a beer. Okay. And they, they call that the My Turn series. Uh, and Michael is one of their employees who made this beer. It is, it was his turn. Okay. Uh, in the My Turn series to make, and actually the label says, uh, number 24, number 024. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's number 24 in the My Turn series. My Turn series. Michael made a stout with black spiced tea. That's what it actually says on there. Very good. Uh, and it's brewed with cinnamon, ginger, cardamom, cloves, and pepper. Oh, that sounds amazing. I'm going to have to get Ye- me some of that. I would recommend it. I have had it before, and it is amazing, and I'm going to drink it right now. And so here I go. I didn't pregame this episode because, class, I wanted you all to sit down, shut up, stop making out with each other, and listen to me talk about my beer. Yeah, very good. So here we go. Ah, what Pop a great, that top right What off. a great sound. That's what I said on my first date. <laughs> Wait, pop that top right off or what a great sound? Yep, both of those, <laughs> That's what both I of those things of. came up. Huh. <laughs> I may have to create a uh, situation where I play this specific part of this episode for your wife. Um <laughs> Who sometimes, occasionally, I don't know if this is like overstepping, but sometimes, occasionally exhibits slight jealousy about your past romantic uh, history. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> uh, she, uh, uh, what does she call all of my exes? Um, whores, I think. Hussies. I have heard the word hussies used. Oh, hussies. Yep. Uh, yeah. Usually, some very like slut shamey <laughs> language. I don't think it's a stretch to say. She's you... quite possessive of me. Mm. It's endearing. I was going to say troubling, but, you know, if you want to go with endearing, that's fine, too. <laughs> so. What are what are you drinking, Ethan? I am sticking with uh, what I was drinking two weeks ago, the Rift India Pale Ale uh, by Central Waters Brewing Company, which is near where you are now, but not near where you are going. Uh, Not near where I am when this episode is released. <laughs> yes. Uh, Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. <laughs> Podcasts um, are weird. <laughs> time is weird. Anyway. Um, no, sorry, we're drinking, not smoking dope. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, Rift India Pale Ale by Central Waters. Um, the All the copy that's really on the, the bottle, Central Waters is in... Uh, Amherst. Uh, Amherst, Wisconsin, near near Stevens Point. All the copy that's really on the bottle says, there's a picture of a raven, and it says, over five breeds, oh, sorry, I said 
Raven, and I did mean Heron. Um, the bottle is about okay. to correct me on it, if even if I didn't. Over five breeds of herons have made their home in the Great Rift Valley region of Kenya. Likewise, we have taken their lead by creating an IPA with five different hops, blanketed over a foundation of clean malt, featuring Sim Simcoe, Amarillo, and Citra hops. This is our take on the American IPA. Now, Central Waters does delicious work that is very good, and I don't want to at them for the quality of their beer, including this one. I don't know if we're going to do ratings, but pre-rating, it's, it's a very good beer. However, having critically read the sonnet um, regarding the, the rhetoric of my mistress's eyes recently, I have to say <laughs> that the, the, the stretch between five breeds of herons at this lake in Kenya... And we made an IPA with five different hops. That feels like a very long Charlie Horses stretch to me. <laughs> um, it is a little bit, and especially the being that it's an American IPA, and like these right. guys are from Northern Wisconsin. Like I understand you, you gotta reach for these names, and you know, right? Uh, uh, you, you, you name them what you name them, but just Damn. the the explaining that as if there's some sort of logic to it like it made me feel a little funny it it comes out of the the possessiveness that this central wisconsin area feels for herons especially the uh like well uh herons or the the sandhill cranes yeah really. yeah 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 um that's 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 what you see around here and um it's it's in fact the 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 mascot on the logo of central waters is the sandhill crane Right. That's really what it comes from. It's probably they're like, hey, cranes and herons and things. And right. that's our mascot. We should research some more. Hey, there's this one place in Africa that has five breeds of herons. Hey, we made a beer with five hops. Let's name it after that place. I actually feel like <laughs> printing that imaginary dialogue on their bottle would have been a slightly better explanation than the one that they gave. That'd be good. That'd be good. They should do that. <laughs> no, but you know, like I said, I don't want to. I don't want to get at them too much because uh, no, you know, they make they make beer, not uh, compose essays, and what their actual job is, they are very very good at. So, right, we're gonna we're they gonna are, forgive yes. them. Uh, honestly, I haven't come across a Central Waters beer I didn't like. So I don't think I have, including you know styles that I usually don't like. Yep. Um, you know, even they're like like uh weedy kind of weedy beers and red mm -hmm. ales i usually don't like any of that nonsense but um what i've tasted but of central waters i did so they're good there we they're are good yeah i all think right. that's probably all the ratings we're gonna do i talked about how i liked this beer you like that beer we like all beer did beer you try good. the michael you you tried it and liked it uh yes i have i have had it before oh, okay. and it is okay. amazing as amazing as its description sounds yeah it sounds amazing uh, i'm like legitimately gonna have to track this down what yes, is what is can. the brand again uh lakefront brewery okay, from milwaukee okay. wisconsin i knew it was one of the ones that i see in the local craft beer store all the time but yep yep very good and they do that every year they do the my turn series so in fact probably the michael beer will not appear again after 2018 yeah no sure uh, like unless I'm, they like revive it for special occasions but i'm uh definitely plan like considering just dropping this recording right now in fact to go run to my local store and, and get some no um, we have to record <laughs> Though I have spent an hour drinking beer already, so it might not be the best plan at this point. I don't know why I spent an hour drinking beer. It's not like I've recorded this podcast since two weeks ago. 
That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's been two weeks. We yeah. only drink when we're recording. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, <laughs> very good. So yes. now that we've uh, confused everybody, let's yep, uh, uh, you know move on to one of the mo- greatest uh, modernist masterpieces of poetry of the 20th century. Something much less confusing. That sounds good. First, let's hear the rules yes. from Karen. Karen, get in here. Karen, what are the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. There you go. All right, go away. (laughs) Yeah, go away again. (laughs) Good. Uh, And and again, she didn't bother to change... Uh, scotch to beer. Yeah, it's real weird how she keeps just... She just blithely, like, sails in here and doesn't pay attention and just says what she wants, which happens to be the exact same thing, worded exactly the same every time, and then she leaves. With the same even kissing band me. that follows her in and out, that same orchestra. Yep. And... <laughs> yeah, it's real weird, all those... Yeah, I'm, I'm getting sick of feeding them, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I mean that's that's got to be rough. How does your landlord feel about those squatters? <laughs> oh, they they all fit in the closet, so no one knows. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. All right. Um. So, all right. Let's uh let's uh salute with our beers, our respective beers, and then beers, not mention and, our uh, beers or any other alcohol. I don't know how these rules work anymore. I don't know either. All right. But, uh, Frost. <laughs> Clank. So, the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock. Yes. Starts out with an inscription, inscription that uh, is either in so Italian or Russian. Italian, yeah, because it's from the Inferno. Ah, okay. I'm going to try to translate this um, as we go here. So we've got show credes che mia riposte fasa. So show, of course, means if. Um, Credes is the Italian way of spelling Cressida. Uh, and che is a reference to a revolutionary leader from Central America in the mid-20th century. Um, mia riposta, uh, that, that word repost is, is like in fencing where you, you uh, block a blow and then you repost. And then Fosse was, is a reference to Bob Fosse, the uh, great um, uh, choreographer... Uh, so wait, are you attesting century? that the entire first line is just a nonsense garbled mess of references to people in pop culture? Yes, that that were definitely not alive when Dante uh, wrote his <laughs> poem. So what I'm saying 
class, and what I'm saying especially to anyone looking to glean stuff for a legitimate English assignment that they're going to turn in, <laughs> what I'm saying is Dante could see the future, um, <laughs> and also he sent T.S. Eliot this superscription uh, full of references to fairly obscure, much later artists. People who probably weren't even alive when T.S. Eliot wrote. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't worry. Later we'll get into how Shakespeare plagiarized T.S. Eliot. Uh, I think we got okay. into that a little bit, but that's definitely something else that comes up over the course of this poem. So, so now that I'm the teacher, um, <laughs> I get to give you an F for that nonsense. <laughs> fail. <laughs> you fail. But it's a good F, right? Think whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It's an F. But a good F. I don't care what you tell your parents. It's an F. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, so our homework is right. reading this poem. Now that I've J. broken my goal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, I don't even know. Anyway, Ethan, so uh, you were assigned this poem. Yes. <laughs> to read this poem. Yes. By T.S. Eliot. Yes, this uh, one. And you this have a particular here. affinity for T.S. Eliot. Uh, not necessarily this poem, but I'm sure you like this poem. This was honestly us. one of the first poems that like, I ever remember reading that I just sort of grabbed as like my poem. Like, you know, sure. this, this is, this is one of the first ones where, you know, I had a poem that I just liked because I liked it and not because it was, um, you know, assigned to me or that I sort of knew it was a great poem. I mean, I did know it was a great poem, but uh, that's not why I liked it. I liked it just because, like, I started reading it and couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Was I interrupting you? Asking? No, questions? no. That's I, essentially all I was asking about was uh, your your introduction to this poem to T. S. Eliot, and um, I, I guess what is it about this poem that made it something that was something you possessed, something that was yours. <sighs> I don't know. And in okay. fact, I had been thinking of asking you that exact question, as okay. in asking you, Michael, why do I like this poem so much? <laughs> because uh, it's one of those poems that when I'm in the middle of it and when I'm reading it, I do know why. But if I try to like put into words what is so great about it, I, I don't know that I can. May I direct your eyes to line 104 in yeah. this poem? Yeah, you may. Uh, what does line 104 of this poem read, Ethan, if your poem has line numbers? Uh, okay, this, this this is weird. This is real weird. Okay. Um, what it says, if I'm reading it right, is it says, Michael is a butt and a stinky <laughs> pooper head. <laughs> a real weird, like that's not vocabulary. TSLA usually brings to the table. Um, no, what it says is it is impossible to say just what I mean. Boom! That's why we love this poem. Yeah. Um. Uh, because it embodies kind of how we view the world and feel about the world. I guess. Um, right. And literature. Uh, as part of but separate from the world you just made 
I like I love the, what you just said. You did just make everyone who's fifteen listening to this fall asleep. Good, <laughs> good. Um, if I may say, what I was assigned, uh, I was assigned to read this poem as a fifteen-year-old. Yeah. Um, wait, maybe, maybe sixteen or seventeen. That's all the same. Um, They're all just children at this point in my life. Yeah, it's all children. I'm anyway, twenty-nine I, yeah. and crusty and bitter. But uh, what our assignment was for this in my AP literature class in high school um, was we had to read this poem. And uh, what the teacher essentially did was turn this poem into uh, uh, an object lesson for poetic devices. Right. And what we had to do with this poem was take a section uh, of, I think, five lines or more uh, and imitate it. Sure. Write our own poem of five lines or more that matched the meter, matched the rhyme scheme, and matched all the same poetic devices in those lines. Sure. Would you like to know what I did for my assignment with this, Ethan? Would you like to take a guess what I did? Oh, I don't feel fair playing this game because you have told me this before and I do know the answer. Oh, yeah. Okay. In fact, like this is one of the things I wanted to interrogate you about um okay during this this uh this particular episode um so why don't you just go ahead and share with the class that you're teaching what yes what you did with that assignment michael with that assignment uh to take about five lines or so and uh paraphrase that um i took this poem that is 131 lines and uh i did 131 lines myself (laughs) (laughs) I wrote uh, a uh, an imitation of the entire poem, right. uh, matching the exact meter, the exact rhyme scheme, and all the poetic devices I could find uh, within the entire thing, all 131 lines, and I wrote that. Uh, the assignment was to make it the love song of whatever your name is, so I wrote uh-huh. the love song of Michael G. Lilienthal uh, in 131 lines. Excellent. Um, so what I want to ask, and I'm wording this question very specifically and deliberately... What I want to ask is, when you turned in this assignment, why was your teacher crying? <laughs> oh, man. She was one of my favorite teachers in high school. Uh-huh. And in fact, my two favorite English teachers in high school both retired from teaching. Not because they were old. They both retired from teaching the year after I took their class. <laughs> so if it wasn't because um, they were old, why was it, Michael? Uh, well, this particular teacher, she got pregnant and decided she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Okay. That's why. Um, but still, I was very sad to see her go. uh, Yeah. She was very, very good. Also, Um, I was pretty sure that you were implying that, like, they had just reached their apotheosis with you. (laughs) And they were like, well, I've taught Lilienthal. There's there's nowhere else to go from here. Might as well get out of the game while I'm on top. I will say throughout uh, high school and earlier, I was a little bit of a teacher's pet. Wait, what? Uh, Were you? <clears throat> yeah, uh, just, a, just a tad. Okay, uh, so that's a really weird thing to learn because it definitely doesn't tally with literally all of the data that I like <laughs> know about you. Yeah. Yeah. See, here's the thing. If you go to the dictionary and you look up people pleaser, there's a picture of me. Yeah. <laughs> I I always thought that was real weird, especially before I knew who you were. Yeah, I know. I was like, who is this Michael Lilienthal and why is his name in the dictionary? <laughs> yep. 
Granted, so, my picture yeah. was in there next to uh, Snarky Bastard. Um, which I always thought <laughs> yeah, was that's a... one I always thought was weird. Yeah, and I always thought that was a weird action entry for the dictionary to have in the first place. Um, it's one of those compound nouns that never gets turned into actually one word. It's like right. still two words, but right. you know. functions as one. Functions as one, yeah, because yeah, it, it changes its meaning if you divide the words. Right, so. right, yeah. Uh, very <laughs> anyway. good. So no, so it was, it was, it was, uh, it was well received by my teacher. Uh, I'll say that. Good. And I so, uh, what what did you learn from doing that? Like, what did you take with you out of having done that? Other than obviously, sort of a smug sense of being 126 lines superior to all your classmates. No, that's pretty much it. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> honestly, enough, really. Uh, really, the the purpose that my teacher was driving at which was to teach us poetic devices, Uh really came out um, because I really did have to pay attention to it. Um, And beyond the poetic devices, which you can still count this as part of the poetic devices, but the the rhyme scheme and the meter really came out. And T.S. Eliot has such fun with the meter and rhyme scheme in this poem. Like, he doesn't really have to rhyme or use any particular meter. It's kind of free verse here. Yeah, I mean, it is free Uh, verse. It's a... Yeah, it's taught it as is. sort of a classic of free verse. Yeah, but when he brings those rhymes in and really hits the hits the meter, you notice, yeah. and it's so much fun. <laughs> that's that's really what I noticed, and I'll say this too: when I worked on it, this was while I was working uh, at uh, Dairy Queen after school, and uh, so I'd get done with school around uh, three o'clock, and then go to work at four, and work until ten. Uh, and get home around uh, 10, 30, 11, sure. and spend that time from then until about uh, 2 or 3 in the morning doing homework, and then wake up at 6 to go to school. Um, yeah, that doesn't sound awful. Yeah, that, that, that was my life in <laughs> high school. And uh, so I did this. I, I This is one of those uh, homework assignments that I specifically remember doing uh, in our living room at home with the TV on turned way, <laughs> way, way down low um, so that I wouldn't wake anybody up. Um, sitting there, uh, sometimes, and, and I did do this over a couple days, so sometimes at a card table set up in front of the TV, sometimes just on the floor. And what I would do during this time was I would watch a bunch of movies or TV shows. This was before Netflix, kids. Right. Um, so uh, I would literally have to get up and change the DVD out. And DVD stands for digital video disc uh, <laughs> and change that out in between uh, movies or TV shows. And I was watching uh, a combination of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, The Matrix movies, uh-huh. um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Bla- uh, Dragon, and uh, Pitch Black, the, the first movie uh, in the Riddick Chronicles. Yes. Those were the ones specifically that I remember watching while doing this specific homework assignment. So, um, guess what? Uh, one of the uh, the uh, poetic devices that you had to pay attention to in this poem was illusion. Guess what all of my illusions were to? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The Matrix, Pitch Black, say, Star Trek. <laughs> they were too high school musical, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, oh, I, will, totally. I will also say... Um, the major thing that I got out of this poem is the fact that the only thing that was good about the DVD era was the fact that your DVD player didn't give you a passive-aggressive little uh, note like, hey, are you still watching? You've been staring at this for seven hours, and we're worried about you. Go outside. 
(laughs) Shut up, Netflix. You don't know my life. Exactly. Other than that, DVDs were just awful, and I'm glad we've completely left them behind and no one knows what they are anymore except (laughs) us people. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, anyway, that's that's the homework assignment that I had in high school for this poem. Sure. Um, And I could go through, because I still have my copy of the uh, Norton Anthology of American Literature, the shorter 6th edition that we had as our textbook in high school. Um, So the very copy that I read in high school, which has, next to just about every line, what poetic devices you can find (laughs) in those lines... Very good. Listed. So I could go through all 131 lines. I'm not going to. That would be tedious. Yeah, I was going to say, because you don't actually hate our listeners. No, I don't. Um, So I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, It's a good thing we're actually recording, so I have that as a defense, because if it was just the two of us, you would make me sit here while you listed them all off. Oh, man, just complaining about all those listeners? Ugh. (laughs) They're so awful. I hate... Oh, wait, we're still recording. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Trapped you there. Oh, um, crap. Yeah, gentle listener, tune in next month month for uh, Ethan in a room with scotch that he drinks all of the scotch while talking about whatever he wants because Michael is gone. I think you just lost. Damn it. Oh, and then I cussed. <laughs> I did lose. I'm, I'm not even going to fight that. Nope. And okay. I have a punishment in mind for you, and you're going to love it. Uh... That's what you said last month, and then I ended up in, like, black leather and chains, and I... Yeah, I know. I, I know. didn't love it. I'm going to assign the punishment to you now, but you don't get to follow through on it until the end of the episode. Wow, that's almost worse than just waiting. I know. Okay, Your punishment on. is this. You must write and recite a 100-word sentence. <sighs> and... I'm going to add this little bit to it. The 50th and 100th word have to rhyme. Okay. In the spirit of the poetry that we're reading. Screw, you have to have a rhyme in there. Screw and you rhyme. So that's yeah. good. Not sure <laughs> why true. that came to mind, but here we are. So are we going to just have a bunch of dead air while I just bang out this sentence? Absolutely. Okay. It's okay. I'll cut it in post. <laughs> <laughs> well, then what would be the point of having it? <laughs> It'll be for our special donors. <laughs> uh, They'll get the dead air. <laughs> uh, oh, I okay, hate that so, so much. You do hate our listeners. Um, okay, yep, exactly. Good. So, in the meantime, while you're thinking of your hundred word sentence, let's talk about this poem some more. Okay. So, I, I do still want to ask you about the, this assignment. Like, did you get anything out of it as far as like? the way that illusion or that poetic imagery sort of sort of the thought process behind it that you know do you try to get into Eliot's head a little bit yes um maybe not necessarily into Eliot's head but just in poetry in general uh-huh. um the idea of illusion which illusion is all over in this poem and what it does in this poem is it makes you slow down uh, I am very thankful for the editors of this anthology who <laughs> uh, put into footnotes uh-huh. uh, most, if not all, of the illusions, um, <laughs> which just made me think, you know, at, even as I was doing this assignment in high school, like, how did people figure this out? <laughs> right. That this was an illusion. Um, not illusion, illusion. Yes, we, um, we all got it. We all got it. Yeah, good. Um, but the the idea of 
figuring out that every line of poetry is so deliberately put together yeah that there's something in there that if you slow down to the right pace you're going to get so deep into it that is going to take you as long to read a novel as to read one poem of 131 lines right and that's definitely along the lines of what um elliot wanted out of especially these mm-hmm. earlier poems uh Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, The Hollow Men, um, The Wasteland, you know, and I was going to point out this is the same uh, author who published The Wasteland with footnotes that he wrote for it. As in, you know, he didn't even, even he didn't think that, like, the most brilliant of critics or readers had a chance of understanding what was going on here without him at least giving them some leg up. Give him a little push yeah. in the right direction. And this is, yep. you know, very much sort of Eliot's philosophy of poetry. Like, And and this, this may be for any gentle listeners or any others who are currently experiencing frustration with this poem or, um, you know, have in the past, if you've, if you've had to read it for a, a class in the past, like, a lot of the frustration with this poem comes from the fact that it has this philosophy that poetry is written for a certain educated group of people who will get the illusions, or at least mm-hmm. will know enough to do the legwork to get the illusions. Illusions. Um, and yeah. also the illusions, the parts where Elliot just sort of disappears and his his pen sort of keeps writing uh, as, as in <laughs> sort of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Um, it's quite but, magical. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um you know this this idea that that uh, you should have to work to understand something that it shouldn't just be sort of handed to you. It's very against even some of the higher art um, ideas of the current age. It's it's almost antithetical to the way we understand things. Like you know, it, there's there's this modern ethos that uh, uh, sort of inherently if not explicitly promotes the philosophy that um if an illusion is included in a work it should be included in such a way that you'll still get everything out of it if you don't get the illusion um Mm -hmm. you know you just might get more if you got the illusion or you might get a joke that you wouldn't otherwise get or whatever um but the idea that you should have to have to sort of work or have read other things in order to understand this piece of work is very, very against like how we tend to to consume things in our in our day. Yeah, there's uh, there's an episode of the Cosby Show, um, an uh, older episode when Theo brings a friend from school home or uh, like a study buddy home sure. from school, who's really really smart, and um, Doctor Huxtable of course is very impressed with this young man. Right, and uh, Theo talks uh, responds to him and says. You know when books have a footnote and refer to another book? He's the kind of guy who, when he comes across that footnote, goes and reads that other book. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and that's like that's that's more or less what T.S. Eliot is, is trying to do with his poetry here. Like, sure. work for it. You have to work for yeah. it. You have to really you know, think and, about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, like, like I said, I can sort of understand someone being frustrated with this poem because of that um Mm -hmm. aspect of it i guess i fairly early on 
and possibly because I was the sort of 17-year-old who was reading not only Eliot poems, but also like Plato's Republic and the <laughs> life and opinions of Tristram Shandy. Um, I fairly, and, and you know, James Joyce's Dubliners and um, yeah, nerd basically. Um, <laughs> fairly early on, I cottoned to this idea that um, you don't have to get every illusion in something in order to get something out of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I specifically remember reading Tristram Shandy and just sort of at a certain point, just deciding to sort of have faith that if I kept reading, it would make more sense and be funnier. Um, and it, it often did like, you know, the, that joke specifically, like he buries a lot of the jokes at the ends of sentences or like sets up a joke in one chapter that doesn't make sense for like five more chapters. Um, you know, and, and Eliot's not exactly the same as far as that goes, but if you do just sort of read this poem and, and lose yourself in it to some extent, you know, like I, I almost recommend reading through it one time just and not stopping and looking at the footnotes or, or worrying about, um, that kind of thing and seeing what you get out of it on that level. And Mm -hmm. then when you come back with a greater understanding or you stop and you do read the footnotes, um, it sort of opens out in front of you. And, you know, every time that I go back to this poem, having read more and studied more and understanding more, like more parts of it just sort of fold open in front of me. Um, so it's, you know, and that's a kind of uh, a kind of a sort of literary experience that you can't get in even very good literature where everything is just sort of laid out for you within the text. Mm hmm. Well, and that's kind of the thesis of this poem itself. It's kind of a commentary on its own theory. Right. Of what poetry is and like right. how illusion works in poetry. Right. Um, you, you get this, uh, this idea in, um, it's repeated twice. This, this couplet, um, in the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. Right. And the impression you get is that the speaker in this poem, uh, who is bringing someone along to, uh, some social event or something, you know, let us go and make our visit. They go to some, social event and they're in that room the women come and go talking to michelangelo and i've heard a theory that it's like it's it's a it's an event that takes place in an art gallery or something ultimately i don't think it matters it's there are these women who are coming and going talking about michelangelo and the speaker is just bored right out of his mind because these people who are talking are talking so pretentiously right and thinking they have something to say meanwhile he's looking on with utter disdain of their talking about right. this like their, their talk being so pretentious and so empty but also with some envy of their conversation because he doesn't know how to talk uh-huh. he doesn't know how to be a part of the conversation how how should i presume how should i begin uh he he goes on with uh with some of these things how can i how can i talk and then uh, he goes on i should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas right and then that image of the ocean comes out later too but like just the idea i should just i i should just go and hide right uh, i don't belong here how do i communicate with these people and so like he kind of tries but right. can't and so with these illusions it's it's kind of trying to make a connection trying to get a communication across it this this is whoever j alfred proofrock is if we can assume he's the speaker in this poem he feels very isolated 
right. and unable to communicate. And so he tries to communicate with some illusions, but it doesn't really work. Right. And like the he um, he by yeah, making those illusions, he's expecting the people he's talking to to make to do more work to meet him. And like right. it, it, it's it, if someone is willing to do that, then communication works. Right. But if they're not, then you're isolated again. Right. And in fact, the the idea of communicating via illusion is almost inherently a shaky concept so much so that if you read the poem and you don't get the illusion illusions and um, you're frustrated by that, you're almost getting what the writer wants you to get out of this poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear your take on the, that, that repeated couplet in the room, the women come and go talking Michelangelo. Um, yeah. Cause I've, 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 I've intuited a similar sort of a uh, attitude towards it. Like this is clearly something that's both sort of um, something the speaker kind of doesn't want to be a part of, but also it's a representation of something he does want to be a part of. Um, mm-hmm. And I've always, I've always pictured the sort of uh, aural image of um someone sort of sitting against a wall in a room next to a room where a lot of people are talking. Like if you're at a, if you're at a party and you go to the other room, cause like you can't handle the, you know, the amount of um, people in, in the other room mm-hmm. or even someone like going to a, a lecture or something, but like not actually getting into the room. So in the room and as in the other room, there's that sense of, of the room as opposed to wherever the speaker is the women come and go talking of michelangelo like it's this it's this party that like i hate i don't want to be at it they're just all talking about michelangelo but it's point you know um like i've always taken that that in the room to refer to some other other place um which is obviously again sort of pulled into that idea of isolation that that you'll find throughout the poem um also uh just reading rereading that that opening um having very recently been through um uh act four scene three of love's labor's lost with the the whole uh uh rhetoric of thine eyes um Mm -hmm. badness in the in the the bad sonnet that is is uh recited in that play um I don't I don't know if that's an intentional reference in the opening stanza of this poem or if it's just where my brain is for those reasons but um uh there's there's this image in there let us go through certain half deserted streets um several lines uh between but then <laughs> um he's a streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent um, and there's again that that like idea of placing sort of a rhetorical uh, device onto a very physical and almost mundane physical image there. Yeah. No, and and I think that's what this poem is all about. It's all about talking. It's all about conversation. And the poet or the speaker 
not really caring to continue with it. Like right. he gets what you're trying to do. It's it's uh what tedious. It's tedious. Mm-hmm. Like he gets it. Okay, fine. We're going on with that tedious argument, but it's of insidious intent. He wants no part of it because if he follows along, you're going to win the argument and he doesn't care to let you win the argument. Right, right. Uh, and and like that that comes out in the in the lines just after that too because it's a they follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question dot 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 oh do not ask what is it yeah like, which, I don't care we're not going there we're not talking about that right and it's it's That's not the point it's a that that line to me has always been both sort of um, masterful and frustrating. Because, right? uh, you know, it, to me, it some of this, especially the opening, um, recalls the, the passionate pilgrim version of uh, <laughs> Shakespeare's sonnet 138. This, this, like, sort of youth who sort of has these troubles but is finding an external um, object to place them on. Because that's very sort of youthful, almost callow thing is to create a situation where clearly you want to be asked about what it is you're having feelings about and then when someone asks you you're just like oh don't don't ask that like yep. you just completely <laughs> misunderstood my need to be misunderstood yep <laughs> oh it's delightful and, and like you know i think and i think sort of this poem modulates over the course of it and as you get to the end you know obviously even just line 20 or line 120 rather i grow old i grow old i shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled you almost get to a place of the revised version of sonnet 138 of Mm -hmm. a much you know a person who's much more sort of mature and able to look at his life as a series of choices that he made um for better or for worse uh, well, and he he even sees that as something inane, like recognizing the life as as a, a that series of choices that that he's made, and and then choices that he has yet to make. He's like, I don't want that. That sounds so lame and stupid. Like, right. uh, then he goes into these rhetorical questions. That's just like, that's uh, it, it's so absurd. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? It's stupid. <laughs> Right. These are these are stupid questions. Right. Why am I even going to do that? It's it's all about the inanity of the mundane life. And instead, then ultimately he comes to, um, at least this is how I'm seeing it at the end here in these last stanzas. Uh, he he rejects the inanity of the mundane life and instead chooses to live in fantasy, to 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 live in the invented world, which is represented by uh the the ocean, the sea, uh, where he he says, "I've heard the mermaids singing each to each." Uh, which which kind of uh, reflects Isaiah six, where Isaiah here uh, sees the the seraphim around the throne of God, and they were s- singing each to each. Oh, okay, um, yeah. Uh, holy, holy, holy. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, that that whole reference. Um, so I think it's I think it's a failed attempt to live in fantasy. Yeah. Because of that very next line, I do not think that they will sing to me. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, and then uh, it comes, and, and like he he tries to live with it, and t- and then you get to the very last line of the poem: "Till human voices wake us, and we drown." Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I I take to mean that he's stuck drowning in real life. Death is life. Right. <laughs> in this real um, life for him is living in fantasy, but he can't do that. He's dead. Sure. In 
real life, quote unquote. And I, I, uh, um, I guess the other way that that I sometimes view this, uh, and it's not, it's not a negation of what you just said necessarily, but sure. I think there's also um, very much sort of a wry humor that comes through, especially in mm-hmm. the the second half of this poem. Um, even just no, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be it's this this sort of aging and this idea of finding his place mm-hmm. um and, you know this is this is very much someone who's who's uh at one point thought they were they were something and has found out that they were something else which i think is another one of those great sort of banal but also profound things that that happen when you age um i'm an attendant lord like i'm not i'm not the guy who runs the kingdom i'm just the the guy who holds the cheese platter and you know maybe makes a good recommendation for what the prince should drink for his wine or whatever um you know i'll i'll do to to like swell a progress so to like be part of a a big scene you know to be one more body to make that scene uh sort of (laughs) impressive i'll do to start a scene or two like i can i can sort of kick things off and be that energy that that starts the scene but i'm not the the focus of the scene um advise the prince no doubt an easy tool which of course makes him rosencrantz and guildenstern um Mm. or at least rosencrantz and or guildenstern or it makes him horatio okay see i have a a slightly different spin on it i think it makes him polonius oh (laughs) yeah um because he goes on deferential, glad to be of use, poetic, cautious, and meticulous. So already he's rambling like Polonius. Yep, that's true. Full of high sentence. Which is exactly how Polonius would describe himself. But a bit obtuse. Yeah. At times, indeed, almost ridiculous. Right. Almost at times the fool. And, and that's exactly Polonius. Yeah, I was going to say, there's, you know, the fool... Is an easy, it's easy to pull a reference to King Lear there, and, and yep, which fool. which then comes in the very next line. I grow old, I grow right. old. You know, you've got the fool, and then old. Um, but so you're, you're, you're right in Lear. in a Hamlet context. Um, the closest thing in Hamlet to a fool really is Polonius. Yep. Like archetypally, which, that's the the feature that he fits into. Which this this is kind of um, how I how I took this in in high school when I first was assigned this and uh-huh. like I, I still kind of think this way and it, it did infect some of my poetry early on when I was a bad poet and uh-huh. I'm not going to claim to be a good poet now uh-huh. um, <laughs> but uh, when I would write poetry and you know I, I can look back on it now and see that I was imitating this right. But uh, it wasn't intentional. Ultimately, what I was doing was starting to comment on my own poetry. Right. Within the poem. Right. And that's what I think this is doing here. Um, I think that uh, that line, no, I'm not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be, comes out of that line 104. Mm -hmm. It is impossible to say just what I mean. Mm -hmm. Because one of the themes within Hamlet is the the uh uh inability of uh the the inadequacy of language the inadequacy right. of words you know that line words right. words words um that comes out it's just these are these are meaningless things that i'm just throwing out into the air right. it doesn't actually do anything i'm just talking right um and that's another 
that's another thing that I think gets missed in a lot of English classes um, is just the the fact that there's a very real continuity here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, often you get taught, oh, Shakespeare wrote sonnets, uh, which were this very formal thing. And T.S. Eliot broke the mold and wrote, um, you know, wrote free <laughs> verse, which is like very close to sentences I myself have said over the course of teaching. But there's a, a real danger that I think does get fallen into um, of using that somewhat artificial set of distinctions to miss the fact that, you know, T.S. Eliot's poet, poetry, both stylistically and like thematically and content wise comes straight out of Shakespeare. Like, you know, mm -hmm. T.S. Eliot is, is just sort of responding to Shakespeare. Um, Absolutely. And he's living it, in the world that Shakespeare created. It's a conversation within poetry. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, ultimately the question he's asking here is what is the difference between Hamlet and Polonius? Right. Um, uh, like Hamlet is speaking meaningless words right. that aren't accomplishing anything. So is Polonius. What's the difference? What 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 makes Hamlet right. the prince? What makes him the the uh, uh, the 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 one that we 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 look at as as some sort of um, hero right. uh, within the the canon? And Polonius is the fool. Right. Uh, and he's he's looking for himself within that comparison. Where do I fall? If there's a spectrum between Hamlet and Polonius. Where do I fall within there? Am right. I more Polonius? And is that actually as far away from the heroic as I think it is? Right. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. I was, it just occurred to me that, you know, this is still sort of a, an interrogation of death, right? And even mm -hmm. the idea of death. Because it was occurring to me as you were, as you were talking that um, this is uh, perhaps just like if Polonius had survived, like if, if Polonius either by chance or by being just slightly smarter than he was, if he had survived <laughs> and lived to an actual like ripe old age, you know, how would he have thought? What would he have thought? Um, and it, it just reminded me of something said by, I think some historian at a certain point um, about uh, Jesus and this historian, you know, is talking from a secular perspective, and he was saying that, like, it was key to the religion and the growth of Christianity that Jesus was crucified when he was, that a Jesus who lived to sort of a, a ripe old age would not have been the figure in history that he was. Mm -hmm. um, which, of course, you know, to Christians is sort of like saying, well, if your cat was a dog, you're cat would be a dog and not a cat um but <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> there is this very real idea that you know when you die as much as how you live or how long you live has as much to do with who you, with your character as anything else does um polonius partly is polonius because he's the fool who got himself stabbed in an heiress by hamlet um you know, yep. really what I'm flirting with saying here is just the, the good old Dark Knight quote, the whole, you know, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Right. But, you know, that's a that's a movie that T.S. Eliot in the past references for good reason. Like, it's a, exactly. it's a good quote. 
Exactly. That's that's what he's driving at. Yeah, yeah, um, it really. But is. no, that that idea of uh, of death is very at the forefront here because that quote in Italian from the from the 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 header to this poem uh, from Dante's Inferno. Um, if I may read this uh, this footnote here um, in uh, the shorter sixth edition of the Norton Anthology of American Literature, uh, and your translation was very good, Ethan. Uh huh beginning of this episode but i'm i'm just gonna let the the professionals tell tell me oh yeah <laughs> good good passive aggressive comment there i see what you did <laughs> you. so I'm the italian reads uh in uh english translation if i thought that my reply would be Bad to one who would ever return to the world this flame would stay without further movement but since none has ever returned alive from this depth if what i hear is true i answer you without fear of infamy uh, and then it goes on and gives the comment, the speaker, Guido da Montefeltro, consumed in flame as punishment for giving false counsel, confesses his shame without fear of its being reported, since he believes Dante cannot return to Earth. Uh. So, like, that just gives, if you speak Italian, or right. know what this is from, right. it gives the sense that the one who is speaking this is one who is dead, Right. And not just one who is dead, but one who is dead and a liar. Right. One who is given false perjury, but a liar who is speaking the truth because he doesn't think the truth will ever be heard by living ears. Right. And that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think that gives some some meat to all of the illusions and the meaning behind things that he doesn't expect anybody alive to really get it. Right. Is kind of how this the this J. Alfred Prufrock, this character is behaving with the poetry. He's just right. speaking the truth that he doesn't think anybody's really gonna get because he is dead. He is drowned already. That right. I, I, I I I take this to be a constant state. That the, the last line of the poem, that one thirty one, till human voices wake us and we drown. Right. I take that to be a constant state. When he wakes up from his fantasy, he's dead. Mm-hmm. He's always dead. In this life, he's dead because he cannot really interact with the living. Interesting. And that's that's and I think it is a bar of communication because he's sitting there. He doesn't know how to talk. Right. He doesn't know how to talk to anybody, even right. to this this woman, whoever she is, that he wants to talk to. How can I presume? How can I go and talk to her? How can I do that? I can't. Right. I, I'm I'm stuck in my own little isolated sphere of non communication, um, and in this social setting how how do i behave in right. this how do i do that that doesn't make sense and so he's he's dead rather than part of that right. which i think does like I, 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 even in that that commentary that i'm giving kind of toes the line towards like the emo right. sort of movement absolutely <laughs> very good well do you have anything else you'd like to uh uh share regarding regarding the love song of j alfred proofrock teacher that's pretty much it uh although um well maybe maybe one more thing um you know we talked about illusion a bunch um and i think the only other um poetic device i have written in the margins of my poem uh more frequently than illusion Uh is personification Uh um which is really tied to imagery Uh um and that comes out right in the the first couple lines uh, of the poem, uh, and and I'll say this in um, in the Norton anthology that I have, uh, the poem starts at the very bottom of a page, right, and 
aside from the Italian header to it, uh, you get two lines of the poem before you have to turn the page. Uh, <laughs> and those two lines are, let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky. And right away, um, as I was rereading this, I, I couldn't turn the page. Right. I was stuck just going back over those two lines and just thinking right. about those two lines. But then you turn the page and you find out that that's part of a personification. Right. When the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Right. Uh, which just blows it up even more. Again, there's the death right away at the beginning. Right. There's a, there's a, uh, a patient who's, who's etherized, who's, who's unconscious, made unconscious to be operated upon. Death is right there waiting. Um, but, uh, so that personification that comes out, the evening is a patient who's unconscious and being operated on somehow. <laughs> um, then the one, um, whenever I think of, uh, this poem, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, aside from the pretentious conversations that, that, that are going on, that the poet is just like, Bleh, about, um, is, uh, this image in, uh, in lines 15 through 17, um, the, uh, well, and it goes on beyond that, too, but it starts there. Uh, in that stanza, it says, The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, right. the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening. Uh, that that picture of the this yellow fog in this city as a cat, mm. that is always in my mind. That's always what I think of whenever I think of this poem. Always that yellow fog cat. Right. Right. It's roaming around, and then later on, you see it—it uh, it, it curls up uh, around the house and falls asleep. Right. That's—that's um, that's always the image that sticks out in my mind, um, which is, I—I uh, I think part of the mastery of this poem that it is in some ways so obscure with the illusions, but right. also very clear and picturesque with the uh, the uh, personification and imagery. Right. So somehow it manages to have its cake and eat it too right and i guess you know to answer my own question from the beginning um the thing that i have always thought about this poem and part of the reason that it's almost impossible it is uh what is what is the line now um uh whatever it's it's impossible to say just what i mean yep um that that it's impossible to say like exactly why this poem is so good is partly that it's in a sense it's a complete work in the same sense that you know mark twain meant when he gave his uh death threat at the top of huckleberry finn to anyone who tries to to find a moral in this story <laughs> right that that this is yep. a complete work in itself and and like the best you know works of of literature the meaning of it is the thing itself. Um, you know, you can say, yep. you can abstract and say things, say, talk about what the poem like addresses, what some of the themes are, but the actual meaning of the poem is just all of the words in the poem in the order that they are in the poem, which is, you know, so, so, you know, it's, it's in a sense, it's like, it's an experience or it's a, um, it's just sort of a mental a, a mental trip that you go on uh and that's that's what's great about the poem is literally just the poem itself but of course you can't turn that in as an english assignment so you know here we are right <laughs> what's good about this right. poem is the poem and and, <laughs> and what is what is uh in this poem 
is the theme of this poem. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I think some of my favorite lines to think about and some of my most frustrating uh-huh. lines to think about um, are right around uh-huh. Uh-huh. that line, 104, um, where it, it's... That's that's in the second of, of these two stanzas where it's um, it's a question, even though the stanzas right. don't end with a question mark. But it says, and would it have been worth it after all? And then it continues on. Uh, and then the last three lines of that first uh, stanza, uh, uh, what lines, um, 96 through 98. Uh, if one settling a pillow by her head should say, should say, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. And then the next stanza kind of does the same thing. And would it have been worth it? After all, and it continues on, the last three lines of that stanza, uh, 108 to 110, and turning toward the window, should say, that is not it at all. Right. That is not what I meant at all. You know, it's interesting, again, with those and, those Love's Labor's Lost sonnets still in my head. Because um, yep. the point that you made with, uh, I forget which character's sonnet, but the last one that we read last time, um, is the, this idea that poetry should should say its piece and get out and get onto the next thing, um, and this is comp- a complete yep. violation of that. Um, and you know, Absolutely. it's even even at the top of that that last stanza that you quoted uh, at, at line ninety nine to hundred. And would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile? Like it's it's almost just just turning the screw that's already there as far as violating that particular yeah it's repeating itself but that gets to the whole theme of the poem where it's like i i don't know how how to say what i want to say i don't know how to communicate and i think that's my thought on those lines and i don't know if it's enough my thought on those lines is that right there the those Mm -hmm. those quotations there that's not what i meant at all uh, that's repeated right. twice, kind of inverted. Um, those two quotations are the lover of right. J. Alfred Prufrock, whoever he's he loves. Like she says something to him, and he interprets it, right. interprets it a certain way, and she says, "No, that's not what I meant at all." And so, like it's it's his fear of misunderstanding right. and right. being misunderstood. I I don't know if that's enough. For those lines, because it seems like, you know, he's introducing right. another character here who has a whole life and is right. of him or herself, probably herself. It, t- it talks about her in feminine right, terms, right, right. settling a pillow, uh, throwing off a shawl, uh, all that. Um, you know, but anyway, it, it it seems like it needs more understanding there, right. but maybe that's the point, that there's not enough right. understanding for that character so we are once again massively over time uh of course and i and you know again like we said between takes and by that i mean sometime in the last two weeks that (laughs) you know we probably could have done a whole episode about each one of those those uh shakespeare sonnets i'm gonna propose that at some point we should do an alzebo soup style um, series of episodes about J. Alfred Prufrock and take one hour per stanza um, because Ooh, we could we genuinely could we no could one would listen like out of the yes. the people who listen no, no now zero of them would listen but we could genuinely <laughs> do it we'll save it for yes. our, our, our donors <laughs> because clearly we hate them um, yeah. the ones we hate the most uh, 
We hate all of our listeners, but none as much as those uh, who give us money. Only Michael, you guys. Only Michael. Uh, but yeah, no, and I was going to say, we, we do <laughs> our, uh, the second episode or third if we do one on the, the superscription, but the third episode, we do one entire episode on In the Room, the Women Come and Go, talking of Michelangelo, and then two episodes later, we do another entire episode on that same stanza as it's repeated. Yep. It would be excellent. That sounds awesome. So... We have to do that. What I'm going to do now, Michael, is stop yes. and write a freaking 100-word sentence, I hate you. Um, It can't Please just be I do. hate you 33 times, can it? No, because the, the words have to run. No. You know, in fact, I thought about making the punishment that you could not have any two words the same. You could not duplicate any yeah. word. But I, I thought would, that would be a little too mean, especially considering Yeah, I was going to say I would definitely go ahead and violate the heck out of that one. But, all right, here we go. <laughs> now settle in, gentle listener, for this scintillating audio content. And I want you to imagine that I'm typing this whole sentence with the index finger on my right hand, and with the other end I, hand, rather, I am flipping Michael off this whole time. All right, here we go. <laughs> I'll put in some sort of uh, musical interlude Very good. for everyone. Play them Mahler's second for the hour and 20 minutes it's going to take me to do this. M- Mahler's second. <laughs> I'm writing that down. I do like Gustav Mahler. While Ethan is writing, I'll just read from ClassicFM.com their article, A Detailed Explanation of How Mahler's Symphony No. 2 is a Heart-Shattering Why would you do that? That's my favorite symphony, and I'm trying to write. Mahler's Resurrection Symphony is basically great, and we're about to tell you precisely why. When Gustav Mahler, the specky oddball with the huge ambitions and the knack for bluster and religious confusion, wrote his second symphony, it was clear that its popularity was going to last well beyond his lifetime. There are multitudinous reasons for this, but chief among them is that it is big. All caps. Very big indeed. Let's start at the beginning. It's pretty moody. Very moody, in fact. Grumpy lower strings dominate, but that's so, but what's so weirdly captivating about it is how Mahler changes character every couple of pages. There are also lots of complicated performance directions like this. And then it says something in German. Uh, von hier on unmerklich allmählich in in ein etwas strafferes Tempo übergehen. Uh, 
and I don't know enough German to tell you what that means. And this quite in unexpected one, mit humor. And that's with humor in German. I know that one. How about nicht, Gustav? How about nicht? And so it goes on in its inimitably idiosyncratic fashion, each corner of its five movement movements rushing about like a furtive spy with an excellent pedigree and orchestra writing in it. And a top-notch record collection and some existential ennui, of course. Don't forget that. What is it actually about? If you want to get thematic, then look at the subtitle. Resurrection is pretty straightforward, right? Wrong, sucker! Far from being an exclusively religious work, though that's one interpretation, Mahler was keen to emphasize life and death in all his terrifying, mortally buttock-clenching splendor. So he did things like this, and then it's got some, uh, a picture of some of the score that's, uh, quite intense. It's called The Death Shriek. Yeah. So, I'll leave it at that. You can read the rest at classicfm.com slash composers slash Mahler slash guides slash symphony dash no dash two dash genius slash. All right. I did have to take my headphones off because that article was getting far too fascinating and I do love that symphony. Uh, <laughs> yep. I'll, I'll post a link to it in you. our show I notes. I will definitely follow that. I probably will forget to look it up until I see that link and then I will follow it. All right. So here's a 100-word <laughs> sentence. Uh, it's probably, it's almost certainly grammatically incorrect, but I'm writing it as, like, dialogue form, so I'm forgiving myself for the grammatical incorrectness. Um, maybe it's not even. I don't know. Anyway. I would like to ask, and by ask, I mean I don't want to impose on your time, but I would like to ask while we're here in this room with the party in the other room unknowing of our absence, whether you know, and I am embarrassed to ask, if you know whether, somewhere in the drawers and cupboards of this house, I might find as the apotheosis of a long end, I'm not sorry to admit a rather frustrating search, something to secure the towel rack in the bathroom back to the wall from which it's fallen. Like a screw? <laughs> and in case you were oh, wondering, good. the that's 50th good. word is you, and the 100th word is screw. Uh -huh. So. I gotcha. No hidden Very meaning nice. there Very whatsoever. Well I, I didn't count, but I trust According you that it was 100 the, words. According to the, the word counter the on the Google Docs that I'm using here, According to that, it was a hundred words. So very good. I trust you. Oh, <laughs> I will say though, I, I just it. did test it, and the one place that I used um, m dashes, it did count the two words on either end of the m dashes as one word, and so I did oh. technically write a hundred and two word sentence. So <gasps> there, eat me, teach. <laughs> Very it's, good. As the young Very people good. say these, these well, days. Well, I appreciate it. And it sounds like it was influenced by T.S. Eliot. So. I mean, it was influenced by whatever was rattling through my brain at the time of this ridiculous assignment. <laughs> Don't worry. I wasn't the first one to come up with it. In fact, I was the first one to corrupt <laughs> it. <laughs> uh... Yes, that's a story for another time, how I was assigned to write a 100-word sentence, and instead I wrote a 99-word sentence and then wrote one word at the end. Uh, anyway. Yeah. yeah, for a time when we're not recording things that could incriminate ourselves later on. 
<laughs> um, that'll be in the donor folder. That that story. Right. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. We'll 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 post that uh, separately for for the special people that we hate the most. <laughs> <laughs> they might like that one. They might. They might. That might be it. That might be a nice thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's got to be some carrot along with the stick. <laughs> exactly. So. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for listening, gentle listener. Um, as you already know, next month, uh, we will be discussing the book we are reading now, uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. Uh, feel free to read along with that, uh, and, uh, and lead, uh, leave us your comments on that. Uh, you can, uh, go to tapestryradio.org, leave your feedback in the contact section. Uh, if you'd like us to do some of your homework... And no, we do not promise to give you anything that is helpful for your homework, uh, nor do we contone plagiarism. Uh, but if you'd like us to do your homework, uh, find us there at tapestryradio.org slash roomwithscotch. Uh, and uh, look, uh, there's a form there where you can input uh, whatever book or poem or, or whatever you're assigned to read and then do some assignment on whatever, whatever inane thing your English prof or teach has come up with. Uh, put that there and we'll have fun with it. Um, so put that in there or find us on Twitter at Room with Scotch uh, or on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. Uh, search for that on Facebook and as long as you're not a robot, uh, we will let you in. Or a Nazi. Uh, and, or a Russian. Or a Nazi. Though they would be a robot then. So Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Actual so. Russians we will, we will allow in. Actual, yes, actual Russians. In fact, if anyone is listening to our show in Russia, we would love to hear from you. Yes, tell us what you think about your English homework in Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, yeah, send us your homework uh, and otherwise read along uh, this month with The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. Uh, and, uh, if you put stuff in, in the contact section on our website, tapestryradio.org, put scotch talk in the subject line. That'll help us find whatever you're talking about. Uh, also please, 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 uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Um, I I think five stars is enough. What do you think? think Five is is good. Probably five is good. I I think we'll settle for five. Yeah. No less Um, than five, but five will definitely be be five. Five is five is all right. Yeah. Yeah, We'll, we'll take five. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or whatever other um, podcasting feed you take. I guess technically it's Apple Podcasts, not iTunes. Oh, I, I, I think it's the same program. I'm I'm not sure. I, I'm so old. I don't know the. Uh, I mean, the I specific, only use uh, Android stuff, and I don't mean yeah. that as like a shot in some sort of war. Even though I take it that's what it is, but yeah, right. Apparently, by saying I use Android, I'm starting. A fight with people but yeah i don't understand like we are both so old that we don't understand the war that we're in so nope yep, exactly. exactly ours is not to wonder why ours is but to do and die but that's a wow. poem for another homework special i um, hope not freaking <laughs> anyway Tennyson. uh Follow our network also, the Tapestry Radio Network, uh, and enjoy the other shows that we have there. Uh, Intermission, our audio drama podcast, uh, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United uh, actual play podcast. And, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. You can find me on Twitter 
I'm not spacing out at uh, at <laughs> Bjartlet, which is B J A R T L E T T. What else do you do online, Ethan? Uh, I write the script for a webcomic called Pin Porter Girl Detective, which is a sort of film noir slash fairy tale mashup starring a 12-year-old girl who is smarter <laughs> than I am, certainly. Um, and uh, so that's the the art is really good. It's done by my friend Robin G. Uh, and that's at pinporterdetective.com. Um, you can follow our page on Facebook also for updates and, and such things. Yes, check that out. Um, and I am moving in a week, and so our next regular episode will be out soon. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Except you will already have moved by the time this is on. So That's true. That's when this is on, statement. I will already be in a different location. That you are in right now. When that I am in now. Timey wimey, wibbly wobbly. Anyway, that's fine. Whatever. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. So if we weren't trying to cram in way too much material in a short amount of time. Right, right. And now we have one poem. Let's see if we can keep the time on this. Yeah. I wouldn't bet on it. Nope. Karen, get in here. Not really. Obscurantism and Obfuscation, 
orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.